when do you use the two-handed backhand? Well, I think the first part of that question is, how do you get comfortable actually implementing a two-handed backhand? And I think the easiest shot to start using a two-handed backhand is actually the two-handed backhand drive. Okay, so we are back with another solo podcast. Um, Adam is... We're trying to get them on, but we're having a tough time doing it. And the solo podcasts are getting better reviews than the ones with Adam on them. So we might just, at this point, I'm going to keep doing the solo podcasts. I might stop inviting Adam. And if he doesn't notice, he doesn't notice. And that's that's just what we're going to do. Um, but as we do with the solo podcast, I'm just going to get right into it. I don't have many, uh, not much else to say. Uh, we have a bunch of questions and for those who are not familiar with the solo podcast, I just answer a bunch of questions from the comments or questions that are in my DMs. People will reach out to me. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out in the comments because I will answer most of those questions, pretty much anything within reason. I'll answer it. I'm on a break right now. I don't have a lot to do. So I actually have uh, some free time. The first question is, I'm primarily a one-handed backhand player. When do I put two hands on the backhand? Well, I actually came into the game a lot more comfortable with a two-handed backhand. I played tennis with two hands. I never really put one hand on the racket in tennis, except if I were slicing the ball. And again, that's usually for volleys. And in pickleball, you're never really slicing your volleys. You really don't want to be slicing your volleys. So I was a lot more comfortable with two hands. But I think in order to get more comfortable with putting two hands on the backhand, hitting a two-handed backhand, which I think is important, I think it's been shown in the pro game that a two-handed backhand has a much higher ceiling than a one-handed backhand. So you might be more comfortable using a one-handed backhand at first, but the best backhands are two-handed backhands across the board. And there's no one-handed backhand that's so dominant, so attacking. It's just not something that really happens. Um, and that's in singles, doubles, anything. So when do you use the two-handed backhand? Well, I think the first part of that question is, how do you get comfortable actually implementing a two-handed backhand? And I think the easiest shot to start using a two-handed backhand is actually the two-handed backhand drive. The first reason that the two-handed backhand drive is easier to implement is because you've got more room to hit into. So it's not a dink, it's not a drop. It's, you know, the margins are a little bigger. And of course, I'm not saying you have all this height over the net to hit a drive. You wanna hit a pretty low drive, but, you can you can swing hard and, and make some sort of little errors. Maybe it's a little too high. Maybe it's a little too hard. They probably won't leave it anyway. You can have more fun with a two-handed backhand drive. So I think getting started with two handeds with two hands, I think you should be driving the ball. And then the next progression from a two-handed backhand drive, once you get comfortable with that, is a two-handed backhand counter because they're very, very similar swings. So a two-handed backhand drive and a two-handed backhand dink or drop is very different. The swing is way different. You're accelerating a lot less on a drop and not accelerating at all on a dink, obviously. But a two-handed backhand drive and a wide two-handed backhand counter are very similar. So if you look at Ben's game or Dylan Frazier's game, in 2021, they were never putting two hands on the paddle. And it became a necessity because... A lot of the times Ben would get attacked here and Dylan would get attacked here. And it's almost impossible to generate a hard, powerful counter when you're wide like this with one hand. This is easy. I can do this all day. 
And as I get wider over here, I get less and less power. Putting two hands on it, I can hit it harder than I do here because you've got an extra arm, you've got more leverage, and it turns into more of a lefty forehand than it does a one-handed backhand. So that brings me to my next point. When you're hitting these two-handed backhands, they should resemble a lefty forehand a lot more than a, than a one-handed backhand, right? So it's not your right arm or your right hand that's generating the power, that's you know placing the ball. It's almost all left. I'd say it's 80%, at least 80% left arm, left hand. So one way to drill the two-handed backhand drive, believe it or not, is actually to hit lefty forehands. Because if your lefty forehand is horrible, you have no concept of where the ball is going, you can't even hit it at all, you're not going to have a reliable two-handed backhand. I can promise you that. So I would probably go out there and hit some lefty forehands, see how it feels, then just put the right hand on the paddle, and then just basically emulate the lefty forehand the right hand is just going to be there to guide the ball guide the paddle you're really not doing anything special you're definitely not adding any force with the right arm um if anything maybe it's maybe it's a little because of the shoulder turn but it's pretty much nothing and then just keep hitting that that two-handed backhand that's all left arm left arm and left hand you're going to see that it's a lot better than if you're trying to use mostly right arm. So people make that mistake. They put a, you know, they say, okay, well, my right arm is my dominant arm. So if I have a two-handed backhand, I'll still use mostly right arm. I'm just gonna have the left hand there as, as support, as help. No, the left hand is actually what's driving that entire swing. So you know, for just to point that out as an example, I could hit a lefty forehand nearly as well as I can hit a two-handed backhand. I bet you, who else has a great backhand? Connor Garnett, I bet you he could do the same thing. So then the next step would be the two-handed backhand counter. And it's the same exact thing. That's almost all left arm, but you really only wanna use the two-handed backhand counter if you're wide, if the ball is very wide over here and you need to, because at your body, you're still gonna be a lot better served with just one hand at your chest here. This is a lot easier. Two hands here is a little bit awkward, but as you're wide, you wanna go two. So when people attack me right at my chest, I'm not gonna have my left hand on the paddle. I'm just gonna use one hand. And I'm the most, I'm the biggest believer in the two-handed backhand ever. And I'm still not gonna really put two hands here, or at least I'll try not to. But when it's wide, I'll go with two hands. So that's a lot to think about. Um, if you have any questions on that, leave it in the comments. And the two-handed backhand dink, um, putting two hands on the paddle in that situation, or a two-handed backhand topspin drop, those are things that I think will come after. Um, I wouldn't try to implement all of it at once because that's a lot more difficult. I know dinking maybe is easier than you know a two-handed backhand drive or a counter. You might think that, but hitting a consistent two-handed backhand dink, that's all left-hand feel. So that's something that takes time. I think you should develop the drop, or sorry, the drive and the counter first. Um, and lastly, in transition, if it's around the height, of your knees or even even your feet if it's low like that and it's in your you know maybe in between your legs or to your left i would put two hands on that ball if you see the pros when they're in transition they're almost all using two hands because that left hand helps a ton in terms of stability and when you're in transition the ball is going to usually be coming at you pretty hard right transition is technically defense if you're hitting a fifth a seventh those shots that are going there, you know, towards your legs and towards your feet, two hands helps a lot. 
So I think that's pretty intuitive, though. I think there's a good chance you might already be doing that. And if you're not, um, that should be the first thing that you do. But um, that's, yeah, pretty necessary, that one. So when to drive and when to draw. Um, this one's funny because it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, when I got started, I wanted to drive everything that was short, right? If it was a short return, I wanted to drive it. It was easy. I was closer to my opponent. I thought it felt more like a speed up if I was driving it five feet behind the kitchen line off of a weak return. Actually, it's the opposite. So I think if it's deep, you should drive that one more often and use that drive as a setup to hit a fifth shot drop. So dropping the ball off of a return that's two feet inside the baseline, just you know, imagine a great return. There's some spin on it, whatever it might be. Dropping that ball into the kitchen is not easy. So for me, at least, I still don't really feel too comfortable doing that. I know a lot of the pros still don't. So they'll actually drive a third and they'll keep it low. The pace of that drive doesn't really matter. What matters most is that it's got topspin and that it's low so that it forces your opponent to hit up on it. If you can make your opponent hit up on their fourth, your fifth's going to be a lot easier. So I think if it's a short return, I would just drop it right away. Um, it obviously depends on the quality of your drive in relation to the level that you're playing at. So if I were to go play against a bunch of four O's, I could drive every ball and I'm fine. But I think if your drive is competitive with the level that you're playing at and you're not going to be blowing people off the court with your drive, I wouldn't necessarily drive a lot of thirds off of short returns because if that return, sorry, if that return is short and your drive goes a little high, not only is it probably going to go out, but if they can get down on that fourth and if they're hitting a fourth at shoulder height and you're five feet behind the kitchen line, it's a lot tougher to defend that fifth than if you're driving from the baseline and you have a lot more time to react. So God forbid you're, you're running through your third shot drive from five feet behind the kitchen line and you rip it at the person in front of you. They hit down on an easy fourth because your drive's a little high. The ball's right past you. You're not going to really defend that ball because by the time you're finished running through that third shot drive, you might be two feet behind the kitchen line. So I think if they're unwinding a stack, that changes things a little. I think if they're unwinding a stack, you can be, you know, pretty confident in driving that third as long as you keep it low and you hit it at the person who's running in. But for the most part, when I watch myself back, it looks like the smartest thing for me to do is drop the ball if it's a short return, because the main focus is getting into the kitchen. We're not really trying to win points with our third shot. And if we're winning a lot of points with our third shot, then we're probably not playing at the highest level that we can be playing at. So I'm dropping those that are short. And then if it's deep and it presents a challenging third shot drop for me to hit, I will drive the third and then drop the fifth. And maybe it'll take another drop to get in there. But the point is getting to the kitchen. So I would say those are the main things um, when it comes to driving and dropping. And I think another part of that actually is making sure you know that when you're driving the ball, you're not driving for pace. That is usually not going to work. I think there is a little bit of maybe if I hit it as hard as I can and the person doesn't leave it then you'll win the point, they might miss the fourth, and you might get some you know, positive reinforcement at the 4-0 level, people making those mistakes. But as you get better, people will leave your drive if it's going out, and it's also not gonna be as effective even if they don't leave it, because if it's a flat, hard drive, they have more than enough time to react to that drive 
if you're hitting it from the baseline and they're hitting a fourth at the kitchen. So it's not really effective in terms of, oh, I'm going to surprise them. I'm going to hit it so hard. And it's going to essentially function as a speed up that they're somehow not able to react to. No, that's really not going to work, especially as you get better. They're going to have enough time to react to your drive if they're at the kitchen. The best drives are drives that are within a foot of the net height, if not lower, and they have a lot of topspin on them. So by the time your opponent makes contact with that drive, they have to hit up on the ball for it to go over the net. Those are the most easily crashable drives also. So driving and crashing is something that really doesn't present itself too much at the lower levels, but as you get better, it does. And if you want to crash a drive, that drive should be dipping because if they're hitting down on it, if they're hitting it even at a flat angle, it's almost impossible to crash it successfully. Um, and I'm pretty good at crashing. And my favorite drives to crash are if Anna hits a really low drive that's got a lot of topspin, they're hitting up on it. And at that point, the best thing they can do is actually just relinquish control of the kitchen line. Because if they're trying to hit up on that ball in an aggressive way where maybe it bounces near the baseline, they're not going to be able to hit that one hard. Because if you hit up on a ball hard, it's going to go out. So there's a certain speed that you can hit up on that ball and still keep it in. And that pace happens to be a pretty crashable pace. You can actually crash that ball and get aggressive off that ball. So the best thing for them to do in that case is relinquish control of the kitchen line, maybe hit an easy force so that you have a short or easy fifth to hit. So, yeah, I think the pace of the drive is the least important thing. I think if there was a hierarchy of importance in terms of driving the ball, the first thing is height over the net. The second thing is topspin. And then the last thing is pace. Um, I, think, I think there's no reason to miss a drive long also. I think they're actually... You know, the drive is the opposite of the return or the serve in terms of what the best place to miss is. So the best place to miss a serve or return is deep because that, you know, let's say you're aiming a foot in front of the baseline and you miss one out of 10 of them deep. That's okay because you are taking on that risk of, well, my serve is a lot more effective if it's a foot inside the baseline than if it's five feet inside the baseline. We all know that a really deep serve or a really deep return is infinitely more effective than one that lands eight feet inside the baseline. So that extra risk that you're taking on saying, well, maybe I'll miss one out of 10, that's worth the reward of having the average quality of your serve and return be that much better. But with a drive, there is no marginal gain for you to hit that drive on the baseline or six feet inside the baseline. There's actually an argument that that shorter drive is better. So if you miss one out of, of 10 drives long, that's still not really excusable. You should, there's no reason that it should be deeper. And there's also no reason that it should be higher over the net. I think if there's any place to miss the drive, it's in the net. If you miss one out of 10 drives in the net, I don't think that's that bad because that shows that your target is in the right place and you're taking on that extra risk of having it be lower and lower. It's more effective and more effective. And if you miss one in the net, it's okay. If you miss a serve or, the, or a turn in the net, that's horrible. You should never miss a serve or return in the net because if you're making, you know, there's going to be mistakes that are made. Everyone makes them. And where you place the ball determines where you're going to make that mistake when it inevitably happens. And if you're missing a return or the serve in the net, where you are taking that additional risk is wrong. There's there's no reason to be taking risk of, okay, well, I'll miss it, you know, 
10 feet inside the baseline, it's going to be short and it might go in the net. There's no need for that. It's the same reason you should never miss a return or serve wide. There's no extra gain to hit it an extra five feet wider than it is to hit in the middle. It might actually be better to hit a return directly on the center line in the middle. So why would you miss one wide? Give yourself that margin for error so that if you aim in the middle and then you miss it by five feet left or right, it's still in. So yeah, the moral of the story here is when you're driving, don't miss it wide and don't miss it long. And if you miss one out of 10 in the net, that's okay, as long as your head is in the right place. Serve a return, sort of the opposite. If you miss long one out of 10 times, that's okay. Never miss wide and never miss in the net. Honestly, with either of those shots and with drops also, you really should never miss wide. People say that missing in the net is the worst place. I don't think so. We're aiming low. We're trying to get it up, you know, two or three inches over the net. That's actually the ideal spot to hit these shots. And if you miss one in the net, that's okay. If you miss it wide, that's horrible because there's, it's almost worse to be aiming wide. You make yourself more susceptible to not only Ernie's, but it's easier for them to attack fourths wide than it is from the middle. I would know I love to attack fourths. And if somebody drops in the middle, I have less angles to work with. If they drop wide, I can attack up the line. I can go hard angle and I can still go middle. There's way more angles wide. So when you're on defense in those situations, I would never be aiming wide. I would definitely never miss wide. I think when you're being aggressive is when you use the sidelines and try to spread out your opponents, make space for yourself and be aggressive. When you're on defense, your aim should be in the middle every single time, not to mention that the height of the net's 34 inches in the middle and 36 on the sides. So whew, that was a long-winded answer, guys. Okay, I'm going to have to stop this one a little early. Talking to myself is not easy. Um, well, driving in transition. So this is a lot about driving thirds, fifths. I think driving in transition is actually, it's, it's made to be this horrible thing. You don't want to be driving your fifths or your sevenths. You point out certain pros. Oh, why are they driving three shots in a row? It's silly. I actually think there is a place for driving a fifth or a seventh. Um, main reason for that is I think it's easier to drive a shot when you're off balance than it is to drop a shot because there is more space to hit into. There's a little more margin for error. And if you hit a bad drive that's still a little high, you're still alive. If you hit a bad drop that's high, you could be crushed. So I think, I think if you know your opponent, driving in transition can be a good play for this reason. So let's say you're playing against a team and you know that their backhand's out of the air, fourth or sixth is pretty weak. Then if you're in a tough compromise spot in transition, you're on your back foot off balance, you can just drive it to their backhand, right? If you know they're not going to punish fourth, if they're really just, if they're just going to invite you in, you can drive it there and set yourself up to hit an easier drop on the next ball. Just make sure that you don't miss this drive because it's a setup shot for your next one. So no, I don't think your fifths and sevenths have to be drops. I think if you can pinpoint areas on your opponent where you know they're not necessarily going to punish the fourth, then I think you can drive it there low, almost like a linear aggressive drop, sort of in between a drop and a drive. And I think that can set your drop up to be easier on the next ball. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much all I have there. Um, let's see. Aggressive dinking. This might have to be the last one, guys. My throat kind of hurts. It's, talking nonstop is not uh, not easy. 
Um, it's also early. I usually do these at night. So yeah, let me know if I'm better at doing these at night or in the morning, because this is the earliest I've ever done it. Feel a little tired. Um, yeah, give me give me some feedback, guys. It doesn't all have to be positive. Um, so aggressive dinking. This is something I know pretty well. All my dinks are aggressive, pretty much. I, I love it, dinking, dinking aggressively. When I came in the game two years ago, most of the dinking was slice dinking, just kind of lifting it, pushing it over the net, and it wasn't as aggressive. And I can't blame them for that. I think off the bounce attacks were less potent back then, so people could kind of just make the dink bounce and they would be safe. Nowadays, that's not the case. I'm dinking as aggressively as I possibly can, as long as I know I'm making all of them. You never want to miss dinks, obviously. Um, I think there's certain things about aggressive dinking that you should know. Uh, when I dink really aggressively is when I dink cross court. So from wide, from one sideline to another sideline, and you don't want that ball to be ATP'd. Um, you actually can hit ATPable dinks if you hit them with a lot of topspin and hit them aggressively, so as to know that they're not going to get chased down in ATP. And I mean, when you're playing with four fives and five O's, usually they're not going to run down ATPs, especially on the backhand side and hit them as winners. So I think you actually have a little more freedom to dig aggressively with the backhand than the forehand, because generally backhand ATPs are worse than forehand ATPs. It's just a little harder. So for me, I love to roll the backhand. Maybe I'll aggressively dink to the inside foot of the right side player in front of me. And I'll try to get the left side player to actually take that ball with the forehand because that's how they're taught. Usually a left side player should take the middle or even to a foot to the right of the center line. They should take that with a forehand because that's an easier dink to hit than a right side player hitting that inside out backhand dink. You get them to take that one. They hit it back to my backhand and I can hit a really aggressive roll cross court to the point where it is ATPable. They know it's ATPable, but they just can't get it because it's an aggressive, hard dink. And if they do, they're not really going to hit an ATP too aggressively with an open face slice. Um, I think that's the other thing about backhand ATPs instead of forehand ATPs. A forehand ATP, you can come across it and hit it flat. And that's a lot easier um, in terms of keeping it low. But a backhand ATP, if you're right there, you can hit it with two and you can hit it aggressive. But if you're on the run, you're going to have to open that face up and slice the ball with backspin. Backspin goes up, right? That's why we don't volley with slices. So it's the same concept. Um, so I think for dinking aggressively, you want to use those sidelines and make people move. And on the forehand side, and sometimes on the backhand side, depending on the player, you don't want to be giving up ATPs um, so often. But I think if you set it up properly, you can hit an ATPable dink. That's sometimes a winner. So um, I think it kind of, when it comes to aggressive dinking or just dinking in general, when you're on defense in a dinking rally, which means they've hit a great dink, you're off balance, and you know that you're not ahead in the rally, you're not winning the dinking rally, 90% of the time you want to just make that ball bounce in the middle because that's the best way to reset the point, get back to 50-50. If it resets in the middle, they don't have a lot of angles to work with. I personally know that I can hit a significantly more aggressive dink if it's wide than if it's in the middle because I have so much more space. And that amount of space makes it so that I can actually hit the ball harder. If I only have five feet to hit in, hit into, how aggressively can I hit a dink, right? If I'm dinking from here and I hit directly in front of me, I've got 14 feet to dink into, right? There's 14 feet between my kitchen line and his. But if I'm dinking from wide all the way to the other sideline, 
I don't know the geometry, but it's a lot more space. And I know I can hit that a lot harder. And if you hit that one hard, there's a lot of a, there's a much higher chance they're gonna pop it up, right? If you can hit a hard, aggressive dink, I bet you you're gonna get more pop-ups than if you just push the dink in. So I'd say to summarize on this, um, you wanna set yourself up to be able to hit aggressive cross-court dinks. And keep in mind that you can hit that dink hard because if you're dinking from the sideline cross-court to another sideline, that ball is gonna cross the net in the middle of the net, which is 34 inches high, it's not 36. So you can hit that one way harder than if you dink from sideline down the line to the other sideline because it's 36 inches high and you've got half the space. So um, I think that's the main thing. And then when they do reset middle, which would be the smartest play, I think you would wanna try to find the sideline again until they maybe make the mistake of resetting down the line. And if they go down the line, it's a lot easier to pop that one up. Just like we said, there's a lot less space there, but that also opens up the other sideline. So if we can go through this little imaginary scenario here, let's say I'm on the left and I hit a really aggressive backhand cross-court dink. Happens all the time. This is my favorite situation, right? I had a really aggressive cross-court dink. They are leaning for it. They had made them move and they just, the easiest thing to do there is pop it up down the line. And the best part about that is that's actually the worst shot to hit there, but it's the easiest. So people do it. They pop it up down the line and it's not the worst dink in the world. Let's say it's decent enough where they're not gonna get attacked. They hit a decent dink down the line. If that's down the line, their right side partner is gonna shift towards the middle to cover the middle because they've been pulled massively out wide. So the opposing left player is wide near the sideline. Their partner is on the right, but they sort of shifted towards the middle. My right side partner can now hit a really aggressive cross-court dink to the other side. And now that right side player who shifted middle has to run all the way to the other side. And guess what they're gonna do? They're probably gonna pop it up line. And that gives me so many opportunities. I can repeat the same pattern again. I could earn that ball, I can speed up that ball. So that pattern of aggressive cross-court dinking, getting the other player on the team to move to the middle, I think those are the, uh, that's the best dinking pattern. And if, if you watch Ben Johns, right, he's doing a lot of that. He'll come across and then aggressive dinks on each side and just control the kitchen line that way. So that's all I got. Uh, might've had one more question. <clears throat> I'll answer it in the next one. Might sort of losing my voice here. But uh, yeah, any questions you guys have, let me know. And uh, hey, don't forget to sign up for my virtual coaching, james-ignatowicz.com. Uh, my virtual coaching is even better than this coaching. Uh, so yeah, thank you.